Time Out with Manu Kakopian. And welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Time Out with Manu Kakopian. Today we are joined by Danny Tarkanian, who, if many of you might know, has a very, very uh, famous last name that rings a bell within the Armenian community. Danny, of course, is the son of the legendary UNLV coach Jerry Tarkanian. Uh, Danny, at one point of his life and career, was able to also play for his father at the Run and Rebels. At one point, he was also an assistant coach um, with Jerry at Fresno State. And he's continued the family legacy in, in basketball by opening up his own basketball academy in Las Vegas. And he's now put the family legacy in print with a new book that is out that details his father's legacy and the family last name and everything that they've accomplished in their careers and lives. It's called Rebel with a Cause. And Danny, thank you thank you very much for joining us to talk about your new book and project. Well, thank you. It's really a pleasure to be on. Now, I know a previous book was penned with Jerry Tarkanian, and a lot of documentaries have been made. A lot has been a lot of ink has been spilled on Jerry's legendary career and life. Why did you feel it was the right time to work on another project and, and bring a new element to his life to light? Well, there's been a few of the books written on him, but none of them had the um, experience and background, nor the availability to uh, background information as I did. As I mentioned in the book, I was his, uh, not only his son, but I was his ball boy, his uh, former uh, player, former assistant coach, and uh, his attorney to much of the NCAA matters. And I don't believe any of the books truly told the story that needed to be told about my father. And I, con- and I concentrated a lot on trying to get out what built my father's um, character through his Armenian uh, uh, ancestry and the experiences that they had and uh, how that helped make him a better coach. And then also uh, the type of character and how he motivated players. You know, my father wasn't a screamer and um, – uh, a yellow like a Bobby Knight or some. Most of the other coaches were like that uh, when my dad first started. Uh, my dad uh, chose to uh, motivate his players through sarcasm and wit as opposed to intimidation and bullying. And I just think uh, it's a much better approach. In fact, now most coaches are doing the same thing. Yeah, and you know, I I had the privilege and honor of interviewing Jerry in 2009, back when I was the managing editor at Yerevan Magazine. And one thing that was very clear to your father from the very beginning was his loyalty. He mentioned loyalty was one of the key traits that kind of came from his Armenian heritage. I mean, your father was born in Euclid, Ohio, and moved to Fresno and and, and actually Los Angeles right after that. And I wanted to kind of ask you to what loyalty means to the Tarkanian family and how you kind of saw that in your father growing up. My father always said loyalty is the most important trait in a person. He said, you could always teach a thief not to steal. You could never teach a disloyal person to be loyal. That's always stuck out in my mind. And actually, we have tremendous loyalty in our family because it's so important. And that is an Armenian trait. The Armenians are the most loyal uh, group of uh, people I've ever met in my life. When you start talking about my father's travels from Euclid to uh, California, you know, his grandmother came over uh, escaped the genocide when she was very young, came over to America with very little money, couldn't speak English, 
Uh, and then she gets married, and at a very young age, her husband dies of tuberculosis. She she pulls the family through the Great Depression, and afterwards uh, she has to she wants to move to California. She's got to drive across the country. Doesn't know anybody um, that outside the Armenian community. And my dad said she drove the entire way, most of the time on the wrong side of the road because she didn't know how to drive <laughs> that well. But every place they stayed was at an Armenian household. They brought them in, they comforted the family, fed them, uh, put a roof over their head. And that always stuck out in my dad's mind about how great Armenians took care of each other. And throughout his career, my father always uh, remembered that, and he tried to get back to the Armenian community the best he could. He never turned out to speak an engagement to X or any other Armenian community. He, every time he went on the road, there'd be some Armenians that would call him up and say, hey, we want to bring you over some Armenian food, and my dad would bring him out, have him come by practice and welcome him. And, uh, you know, he did everything he could. In fact, one of the lines in the book, and it's one of the lines I think the Armenian community really uh, enjoys the most, um, is where they were, one of the reporters was teasing my dad during his national championship team because he had a kid on the team named Brian Immersion on, on the team who was the last player on the team, but wasn't a real good player. And the reporter said, Coach, you kept Brian on the team just because he's Armenian, didn't you? And my dad, with his quick wit, shot back. He said, no, I didn't. I kept Brian on the team because I'm Armenian. <laughs> Uh, you love you love to hear it, and of course, uh, Jerry Tarkanian's reign uh, was decades ago. So, for any of the listeners who are not privy of Jerry's accolades and accomplishments, let me just quickly highlight it. In in 19 years at the helm of UNLV, the University of Las Vegas, the Running Rebels, as they were known, he compiled 509 wins, including the national championship in 1990 with just uh, a motley crew of amazing talent, including Larry Johnson, Greg Anthony, and Stacey Ogman. Uh, it was the only title in school history. And um, J- Jerry also had successful stints in uh, the University of Fre- and uh, I'm sorry, Fresno State, and also um, University of Long Beach, and uh, a stint with the San Antonio Spurs as well. And uh, for those who don't have that image of of Jerry Tarkanian, he was very famous for for biting the towel on the sidelines and wearing that white short cut sleeve shirt. And yeah. uh, Danny, I, I want to ask, where did the towel come from? Yes, his first year, his, his first championship season, I should say, in high school at Redlands High School, uh, the, ga- uh, the game was very close, and uh, he was yelling, and his mouth was getting dry, so he kept running to the water fountain to wet it so he could yell some more at the players. But the game went into overtime, so my dad said, forget the water fountain. He just wet the towel one time from the water fountain, came back to the bench, chomped on it, got his mouth wet, yelled at the players. They won the game, and afterwards my superstitious father said, I want a, towel underneath my, a wet towel underneath my chair every game for, from there on out in his career, which he did. Yeah, that was a sight to see, and I think he became one of the more charismatic characters uh, in college basketball during that era. And I remember when I interviewed Jerry in 2009, one of the big turning points in his career was when he was actually offered that Los Angeles Lakers job. And unfortunately, his agent ended up being uh, found dead in the trunk of his own Rolls Royce and um, here in Studio City, California, and, you know, Jerry was close to taking that job, and he, you know, at the 11th hour, he had, he had to think twice about it, 
And he, well, um, it wasn't just his agent. It was his best friend that he grew up with um, who acted as his agent, and he had agreed to take the job. He and my mother uh, were in Los Angeles waiting for the agent to, to come meet him for dinner. The, the agent, his name was Vic Weiss, was meeting with the owner, Dave Bu- uh, not Dave Buss, Jerry Buss, um, and they, uh, he, uh, Vic met with Jerry, got the contract, and it was signed by Jerry. In fact, when they found Vic in the trunk, the contract was there. Uh, and my dad and mom would wait for him to bring it to him, and they were going to sign it. But after that happened, uh, my dad backed out and stayed at UNLV. Uh, obviously, you've had those conversations with your father. What was that decision-making process like? Obviously, when you have your best friend in that found dead like that, it obviously shakes you to your core. Uh, what was going on in through Jerry's head at that point for him to make this different, to, for him to go a different road? Yeah, he was offered the Lakeview job three times. The first two times he turned it down, but the third time he really wanted to take it. Imagine Johnson was coming in as a rookie, and my dad felt they would have a chance to be a great, great pro, uh, NBA program, and they were. He was obviously right about it, um, and he, that's why he was ready to accept it. But the problem is he loved UNLV, too. It was a tough choice to leave, and he loved college, coaching the college kids. Um, he, it was a tough decision when he, when he decided to back out, but it's one of those – just making decisions you make and you got to live with it uh he ended up having a great career at unlv although it was cut short by the nc Tway. i'm sure he would have had just as great a career with the nba uh, nba with the lakers yeah and you know one of the side notes in um jerry tarkanian's career and it and it goes with and it goes with when you talk about jerry you talk about his tooth and nail battle with the nc 2a there was a lot of allegations a lot of investigations too many court hearings and congressional investigations to keep up with. But essentially, you know, everyone mentions the hot tub picture and everyone talks about how the UNLV players with the proximity to Las Vegas and the sports books were involved in controversies of fixing games and with the points and all that stuff. How, How much did that affect Jerry just from a personal standpoint? Well, and that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, because what you stated is a really bad misconception. And uh, there is a certain segment of society that believes that. But you got to separate the NC Tway from the hot tub picture, first of all. So let me talk about the NC Tway first, if you don't mind. You know, my father, as many Armenians would know, growing up in the, the 50s and uh, 40s, um, coming from, uh, you know, immigrants to come escape the genocide, when he got to the Central Valley, and was going to college at Fresno State, there was great prejudice against the Armenians at that time. In fact, my mother was warned not to go out with an Armenian, how bad it would be. They wouldn't let Armenians uh, in the sororities and fraternities. So my father experienced a lot of this type of discrimination, and his mother warned him, don't ever fall into that trap. you got to fight against it. My father was also a bad student, and uh, in fact, it took him uh, uh, eight years to graduate from college, and he said if he hadn't met my mother, it would have took him 10 years. She got him on the right track. And he used to get in trouble off the court all the time. Uh, he, was, he was a crazy kid growing up, like many were. So when my father got into coaching, uh, he recruited kids like he was uh, growing up. He, he recruited these poor inner-city African-American kids that were discriminated against, that were, got in trouble off the court, and uh, weren't great students. And the NC2A rules uh, were not made to apply to these type of kids because the NC2A rules were passed in the 1950s when there were more affluent families who had money to pay for their kids' extracurricular activities in school. Well, these kids coming to play basketball and football in the 60s from, from then on, 
they don't have any money to live off of uh, at their home, let alone at school. So these rules uh, that they applied to the, the, these kids were discriminatory. Uh, they made the kids live in uh, the poverty level compared to the rest of the kids on campus. So my dad spoke out against that. He taught the NC train, said these rules aren't right. Uh, you you got to change them. And, um, my dad said, I'm going I'm to break the rules. I'm not going to treat my kids like this. And because of that, the NC2A came after him, and he fought him for 31 years. So when you start talking about all these investigations and hearings, I put in the book all the factual documents because, as I mentioned, as his attorney in these cases, I was privy to them. And it leaves out none of them. These NC2A charges were uh, big uh, uh, violations like paying players large sums of money or um, buying them cars or doing anything. It was all small things where – you, my father admitted that he wanted the kids to live as every other college kid on campus, and uh, um, he admitted to those things. But it was a war for 31 years. At UNLV, he had a chance to have a dynasty like UCLA did, so many in a row, but the NC Tway forced him out right after he had won his first one and barely lost his second. Um, it's, it's really important for my father's legacy to understand that he was standing up for the people that didn't have a voice that were being discriminated against. Um, that were being treated unfairly, and because of that, he paid a huge price. Then when you talk about the hot tub picture, there's no more benign story in the entire history of college sports than that one did uh, compared to how big of an impact they made it. Uh, this point shaver that you're talking about, first of all, he, he changed his name, and people uh, in the public didn't know who he was. And He was a um, former um, AAU coach in New York City, uh, after the point shaving deal happened, and one of our players, Moses Murray, played with them, as did players from all over the country at every other major school I played for them. And they all had relationships with them. So this hot tub picture had Moses Scurry and David Butler in it uh, and a kid named Anderson Hunt. But when you start talking about point shaving, uh, that hot tub picture happened after Moses and David Butler had graduated. And they all Moses and David Butler did was win the national championship by the largest margin ever. Anderson Hunt was on the team that we lost by two to Duke, and that's where people said, oh, well, maybe the team was still in the game there. But Anderson Hunt had 34 points. It was the best player in the court that game. Obviously, those kids weren't throwing the game. And, in fact, the, new, uh, the Vegas sports signs showed that the spreads didn't move and that there was nothing to it. So it's a, it, the media liked to attack my father because he stood up and was um, for people that didn't have a voice and was controversial because of it. And um, they, they – really tarnished his image, and that's one main reason why I wrote the book, to clarify some of these things. You can read all about the NC2A and the point-shaving stuff in my book, and you'll see how unjust it was in tarnishing my father's image by it. Yeah, and, you know, I feel like, Jerry, uh, there was a lot of misguided criticism towards him. I feel like um, there was a lot of uh, reasons for the NCAA to perhaps find him as a whooping boy at that time because— um, and, and there's the classic quote where Jerry Tarkanian says, the NCAA is so mad at Kentucky, they're going to give Cleveland State another year of probation. And I feel like Jerry always felt he was Cleveland State. He was the underdog. He was the one with the chip on his shoulder that always had to fight. And uh, how do you feel he uh, led with that fighter's mentality? Do you think he took pride in, in kind of standing up to the NCAA and fighting with them tooth and nail? Well, first of all, he was like the Cleveland States, but he just got to be a little bit better than them. Uh, at Long Beach State, they were Division Two before he got there. They had no money. In fact, my father commented that most athletic departments had more money in their budget for stamps than the Long Beach had an entire budget. 
and um, he took on the big boys like UCLA and almost uh, beat him in his third year there. Uh, then he goes to UNLV, and the school is only Division One for four or five years before he got there. And in three years, he's taken on North Carolina in the Final Four. And um, 18 years later, he's whooping Duke's butt to win the national championship. So, sure, they were the, these poor upstart programs, and he took kids that nobody else wanted and would work, play for and, and, and turn them into national champions. Um, so, uh, so there, 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 there is a lot of similarities to that. And yes, I do think my father would be proud, and I know he was proud that he stood up and fought for um, these uh, kids that he was uh, coaching and that weren't being treated fairly. I know he felt very badly how that it destroyed his career. As I mentioned, you, you, you mentioned those numbers at UNLV, but when he re- was forced out at UNLV, he was only just 60 years old. Coaches are now coaching in the mid-80s. He had the best players he's ever coached committed to come to school at UNLV. For you, those people from Southern California, remember the national championship UCLA won in 95. There are three best players that committed and signed to come to UNLV, uh, Ed O'Bannon, Charles O'Bannon, Sean Tarver. If my dad was still coaching there, he was UNLV that would have won that national championship, not UCLA. Jason Kidd had committed to UNLV as a sophomore. Instead, he took Cal to the best teams in their history of that program. If my father wasn't forced out by the NCAA at UNLV, he would have won three or four or five other national championships. And that's what you got to live with when you fight the big boys and you take them on and you pay a price for it. And unfortunately, my dad paid that price, but I'm very proud that he did. And I'll tell you what, I would hope for our media community to be proud because he did what was right and he fought for the people that uh, couldn't fight for themselves. Again, ladies and gentlemen, we are joined by Danny Tarkanian, who is the son of the legendary basketball coach Jerry Tarkanian. Danny, uh, in addition to being a basketball player in his heyday, an assistant coach for Jerry down the line, and, of course, a politician as well, too, later on in his career. He's now penning a book, Rebel with a Cause, which essentially details the entire Tarkanian history and talks about the family's legacy in basketball. Um, Danny, I have to ask you, why aren't there more Armen- more prominent Armenian figures in basketball? You know, I, it's a good question. One, I, I don't think we were blessed with natural talent. Uh, you know, we're not the tallest um, ethnicity. Um, we, uh, um, there were some really good ones, though, that were out there, Lazarian, um, Greg Gorgian when I was growing up. Uh, and there's not a whole lot of us out there compared to the other groups uh, that are out, that are that are playing too. Yeah, I mean we're we're naturally known as fighters. You know, a, a lot of boxers, a lot of people in MMA, chess, wrestling. Those are the sport, sports we seem to be uh, finding success in. I know right now one of the key figures in the Armenian community, which I've had the pleasure of meeting and interviewing in the past, is Rex Kalamian, who is the assistant coach for the Los Angeles Clippers and has been an uh, an assistant over the last 20 years. I know he does a lot of great things for the Armenian community from a coaching standpoint and making sure kids learn basketball the right way. And um, uh, how have you been uh, involved with the Armenian community, specifically in Las Vegas, through your basketball academy? Well, we have, I started this uh, academy to teach kids the life lessons you learn through playing sports more than just teaching them to be basketball players, uh, giving them an opportunity to participate. And I work very closely with the Armenian community, and I provide gym time for the um, um, men uh, to, to pray, play in our gym, and I have for years. And 
Um, I put on clinics where we've had some of the, the kids participate in it at, at no cost. Uh, we try to provide the opportunities, but it's whatever the kids want to play, that sport is what I really want to encourage them to do so. Um, I have four kids in my own. I don't encourage any of them to play basketball. I want them to figure out what they like the most and, 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 and pursue that their dreams. Right, and you mentioned playing basketball. You started off as the towel boy. I see... The, I've, I've seen pictures with you as a young kid sitting on the bench back when uh, your father was coaching Long Beach State. And what led you to become a basketball player? Well, I followed my father everywhere he went, um, uh, coaching-wise. You know, when he was coaching in junior college, I was very young, four, five, six years old. I followed him in the gym, and naturally that became my attraction because I was around it so much. Um, that's all my father did my, was, was basketball. Everything that we did as a family was centered around his basketball. We'd have great summer trips where we'd go up to a speaking engagement my dad had in, say, Montana. We'd, he'd rent an RV, and the whole family would travel and, and um, stay over at uh, different uh, uh, stops. And, and, we, and it was all a wonderful time, but it was all centered in basketball. And I want to ask for your favorite basketball memory with your father as your coach what was that one landmark moment that you both share on the basketball court when you were a player as well for UNLV I think it would be when we when we beat uh, Fresno State in the uh, 1993 uh, Big West Championship I had hit a three-point shot to send it in overtime and then we hit a long three-pointer to to win the game in in, in overtime it was a great win because my dad had close ties to Fresno State having been a player there and actually was a future coach there. And uh, he always, uh, that game always meant a little bit more to him. So that was very special. But, you know, there, there was a couple of stories with my father that uh, I like to talk about that tells a little bit about what he, his, his character. And as I mentioned, like one of them was he didn't yell and demean players. He tried to encourage them with sarcasm and wit. So like one time when I was on the team and our team wasn't playing real hard in practice, he called us together and he'd, say you guys are all a bunch of bandits next time you pick up your scholarship check wear a mask and gun because you're robbing the university when you don't play hard and uh we were so scared the way he said it but wanted to laugh so badly because it's so funny but it got us to go out there and play real hard but that was his character and that's what i'm hoping to get across the book how people see that's how he dealt with people and then another story is this and it doesn't sound make him sound great but he honestly believed that if you were honest and truthful to people even if they, they didn't, li- uh, didn't like what you said, they would uh, appreciate it more. And um, basically, they would play harder for him, and, and, and that's what they did. So there was a story. Uh, when I was on the team in 1982-83, uh, we had two great players, Sidney Green and Larry Anderson. And uh, some of our players were complaining that my father was favoring them. You know, most coaches will try to snip that in the bud and say, no, I treat you all the same. My father felt honesty was always the best approach. So he called the team together and he said, I understand some of you don't think, uh, some of you think I'm favoring Sid and Larry over the rest of you. And he goes, I just want you to know that's true. Sid and Larry are carrying us. And if we're on a desert island with one cantina of water, I'm going to make sure Sid and Larry get everything they want to drink. If there's anything left over, I might share with the rest of you. And I'm sitting there thinking, gosh, I'm his own son and he's going to thirst me out like that. <laughs> that's just isn't right. But that's the way my dad was. He was honest, and he felt honesty was the best uh, quality. You throw that in with loyalty, and I think you got a great human being. Absolutely, Danny. And we're going to keep talking about that great human being 
right after we take a quick break. So please dig more deep down in that vault of stories that you have, and we'll continue the conversation right after this. You're listening to Time Out with Manu Kakopian. And welcome back, everyone, to Time Out with Manu Kakopian. We are joined again by Danny Tarkanian, who is the son of the legendary basketball coach Jerry Tarkanian. And Danny has penned the book Rebel with a Cause, and it is essentially the end-all, be-all book about the Jerry Tarkanian and Danny Tarkanian legacy in the world of basketball and everything that they've accomplished over the last 40 plus years in basketball obviously jerry unfortunately is no longer with us and uh but he was what by all accounts one of the best college basketball coaches of all time and an nba basketball hall of famer uh jerry uh, jerry tarkanian also um was a national champion and and like we discussed danny earlier uh, his legacy uh, can't be told without all the stories that come along with it. And with him being uh, a figure in Las Vegas, it's it's somewhat, uh, it, it kind of matched his aura and personality as well too because he was fit for the position just to, from a star standpoint. And I wanted to kind of talk to you about some of those stars and entertainers who would come out to the games during UNLV's glory years because I know th- there's a very prominent Armenian community there as well too with Kirk Krikorian and Andre Agassi. Who are some of those people that would end up coming to the games during the heyday? Well, we had all the big uh, entertainers at the time, uh, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, um, Diana Ross. In fact, we had our opening of the Thomas and Mack Center, the basketball arena that was built for UNLV in 1982. Uh, the opening act was Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, uh, Diana Ross, and others. Uh, it was it was something else. Frank Sinatra used to recruit for us. There was a kid in New York that uh, he tried to get to come to UNLV, but he, he lost to South Carolina. Uh, my dad said he'd be on the road and he'd get a phone call from the celebrity saying, hey, I just saw this player from my hometown and tell him who he should go recruit. Uh, we had Wayne Newton singing the national anthem. Mike Tyson and many of the others would sit in front row with what they call Gucci Row at the games. Uh, Las Vegas was the entertainment capital of the world. And UNLV basketball was the best and, and most sought-after entertainment in the city. So it, re- it really was a great experience. It bonded everybody together. And they put on a great performance. The people who organized the UNLV games did a great job. They started a um, pregame show that nobody else in the country did in the mid-'70s. And it started off as a light show, multicolor lights, flashing around. And they'd play the Dawes, Jars music, the Tark the Shark, and clap that way. Later on, they added a fireworks show and laser show. It was a great, great production, which now many of the NBA teams are copying. Uh, UNLV was ahead of the time in so many ways, and including the style of ball. They, they started racing the ball up the court and taking uh, quick shots and playing great defense, which so many teams now are doing. Uh, so we had it all going early in the uh, mid-'70s all the way through the 90s at UNLV. Yeah, and, and for those who might not know, um, there are schools and streets named after Jerry Tarkanian and there is a, a Tarkanian way right out, right across from the home arena for UNLV, which is a Thomas and Mack Center, like you uh, mentioned, Danny. And, of course, there's the 
statue that everyone gets to see when everyone walks into the Thomas and Mack Center. And I actually, uh, I, I, write a, I write a lot about boxing and UFC for the Los Angeles Times. And for work reasons, I travel to Las Vegas frequently. And I hadn't had a chance to cover a game at the Thomas and Mack Center. I'm sorry, a fight at the Thomas and Mack Center in quite a while. So I hadn't seen the statue in person since it was built. So I made it a point to go to the Thomas and Mack Center and take a picture with the legendary Jerry Tarkanian. And uh, for those of you who want to check it out, you can go on my Instagram, at Manu Kakopian. And, um, you know, Jerry was such a, a, a prominent figure in Las Vegas, Danny, that when he passed away, the Las Vegas Strip dimmed its lights in honor of the coach when he passed. What was that feeling like to have the respect of, of and, and have the city honor him in such a way? Yeah, first of all, the, the dimming the lights was the greatest compliment and uh, honor you can be bestowed in Las Vegas. They only have done it, I think, it's either four people or five people. Uh, one was JFK, uh, one was Frank Sinatra. My father's right up there with them. Uh, it was really a great, great honor. Uh, we were obviously very sad when when my father passed. It, was, it wasn't like we were celebrating, but it was certainly something that made us feel good about my father. The statute you mentioned is really amazing. There's several other coaches that have statutes at the universities, but none of them are like the one that guy did for my dad. Not only is it a great replica of what he looked like, but it has a towel and it also has a ghost chair next to him. And for the people that don't know what the ghost chair is, my father was very superstitious in games. He would never let anybody sit in the chair just to the right of him. Uh, so or, or, uh, just next to him because he wanted to have that seat open uh, for superstition. So they made that as part of the statue. So when you go there and you get your picture taken, you can sit in the ghost chair next to him, and it's pretty neat. And um, my, I named my son after my father. He's Jerry Tarkanian Jr. And when he was about four years old, we drove by. Uh, he has two streets named Jerry Tarkanian. Uh, the bigger one, the one that goes around the, the beltway, my son saw that, and he said, Dad, thank you for naming me Jerry. I said, why is that? He said, because there's so many things named after me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah Beautiful. and you know that's actually a tradition that's actually a tradition that goes down the line from a cultural standpoint a lot of armenian families traditionally if it's a it, traditionally name their son after their father um and uh you very aware of that yeah you've and, and you've of course followed that uh followed that cultural trait as well too and you know we we talked about how how jerry was a hall of famer as well too and uh when he passed in 2015, I, I personally was happy for him that he got to enjoy his Hall of Fame recognition while he was alive. In 2013, of course, he was enshrined into the Basketball Hall of Fame after um, a few years had passed uh, uh, after his eligibility. What was that feeling like, Danny, for right. Jerry to have that to have that enshrinement and to have that leg uh, stamp on his legacy? Well, I know it's something he enjoyed very much, even though he couldn't uh, express it that well because of his health at the time. Uh, when you mentioned my father's stats, his coaching record was uh, easily um, good enough to make it in the Hall of Fame right away. But because of his battles with the NCAA, the, the NCAA had stopped that from happening. Finally, in 2013, uh, the, the voters on the Hall of Fame uh, chose him, and it was, as you mentioned, about eight, 16 months before he passed that he, that he went on stage and accepted the award. And He didn't, couldn't speak real well, but you can see by the look in his eye, 
the uh, expression on his face and that beautiful smile that he had, how much it meant to him. Yeah, and and I think when you mentioned the battles with the NC2A, the other small side note is that he only had that one brief stretch with in the NBA as the coach of the San Antonio Spurs, short-lived. Red McCombs, uh, owner of the Spurs at the time, really was quick-triggered in the sense of how he handled that coaching situation. Do you feel that you're, he felt unfulfilled from a coaching standpoint, considering he didn't really get a chance to work his trade and craft in the NBA? No, I think he was very happy to get out of there. In fact, it was partly his decision. He took over the when he left UNLV, and again, he was forced out of UNLV at six years old. Uh, he had an opportunity to coach uh, the Philadelphia 76ers, and the owner loved my father, and uh, they had a young player named Charles Barkley that my father thought was going to turn out to be a great one, and he, again, my dad was right. But my dad turned that job down because they didn't have any other players, and he did think it would take him a long time to get him to be at the top of the NBA. Well, San Antonio had a great team coming back when he, my dad was hired there. But two of the starters got hurt before the season, weren't able to play the entire year. And their point guard, Rod Strickland, my dad loved. The, uh, the general manager wouldn't resign him, uh, despite my dad pleading. And instead, the general manager brought in a, a white guard who could really shoot the ball but couldn't get out and defend and play the way my dad did. So they were 9-11, and 11, and my dad kept complaining in the paper that they can't win with this lineup. They needed to get a, a, a point guard that can go out and play pressure defense and raise the ball up the court. So uh, Red McComb and the um, um, general manager um, at the time, I'm going to blank on his name now, uh, they called him in and said, if you don't like uh, the lineup you have, you don't think you can win, you should, you should resign. My dad said, okay, I'm out of here. And so I think he was relieved by it. I mean, I'm sure he would have liked to have done better, but under the circumstances of what he was given, he didn't want to stay there. Well, uh, he certainly accomplished more than enough in the NC2A. Uh, he had a remarkable 10-year stretch from 1982 to 1992 when he would win 307 games, 10 league titles, 10 NCAA tourney appearances, three Final Fours, and of course the national championship route of Duke, which is by far one of the most comprehensive end-to-end blowouts from pillar to post of any competitive team. I mean, we had Christian Leitner, Bobby Hurley, and Grant Hill on that team, and you guys essentially curb-stomped them. Well, Grant Hill wasn't on the, that team. They had That was the year before Grant got All right. We did that. That team won by 30 points, the largest margin ever in a championship game. But that team also won uh, two of their other uh, NC Trade tournament games by 30 points or more. That's never been done before, where a team had won three games in the NC Trade tournaments by 30 points or more. That was a phenomenal team. The next year, Grant Hill came in and made a big difference for Duke's team, and uh, that's when we got upset by them in the semifinals. Right. And, you know, uh, I wanted to ask, uh, when your father retired from basketball, uh, what was his life like afterwards? I know he he dealt with some health complications later on in life, but when he retired uh, from uh, Fresno State, what was life like for him after that? Well, he stayed on and did some radio work, which was good for him because it kept him busy and would go back to Fresno State. But I'll tell you, the people in Fresno were the best to my father of anybody. Uh, he didn't win as much there as he had at Long Beach and UNLV, but they treated him great. The Armenian community was phenomenal. They kept him on the radio there for quite a few years. Uh, and then once he got done with the radio show, he really didn't have much more to do, and that's where it's tough. I'll tell you, for the people that are thinking of retiring, I saw it on my father. As soon as he uh, finished doing the type of work that he loved, uh, his health deteriorated tremendously and quickly. Um, 
stay working as much as you can. Yeah, and you know, uh, he he seemed magnetic, magnetically connected somehow to the Armenian community. I mean, living in uh, Los Angeles, going to Fresno, going to Las Vegas. I mean, these are very prominent Armenian communities. I mean, Armenians are not, it's not like we're spread by hundreds of thousands across the United States, but in these markets, they're very prominent Armenian communities. And what was Jerry like? And what what do you remember uh, your father being next to him as far as uh, working and collaborating with the Armenian community? Uh, you know, as I mentioned, my dad has always had great um, um, uh, appreciation for what the Armenian community did for he and his family when they made that trip from uh, Euclid, Ohio, to uh, California, and um, just just loved the Armenian community and their loyalty. And throughout his career, he tried to give back to them as much as he could because they were so great to to him. Uh, and um, he, one of the things that always stuck out in my mind, we'd go to different Armenian events, big ones, you know, at these really nice, fancy places, and they never served Armenian food. They'd have steak or fish. My dad would get so mad. He said, we got the greatest food in the world. Why won't they serve us Armenian food? Uh, he, he was really loyal to the Armenian community. Yeah, and I remember when I interviewed him back in 2009, He uh, one of the most profound moments in his life was when, when he actually visited Armenia. And uh, that was a real uh, a moment for him that uh, really st- struck him to his core because he was very familiar with his family's history and how his his forefathers had survived the Armenian genocide and you know were able to afford him life as well here in the United States and you know it, it, I think he kind of adopted that fighter DNA in himself as well too. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. That was the key to him surviving the NC Troy battles was that uh, atti- that never give up attitude from the Armenian uh, heritage and uh, the perseverance that they um, uh, experienced because of what we've had to do with, from all the um, horrendous uh, actions that have been taken against the Armenian community in the past. Um, my dad did get that, that opportunity to go to Armenia. He went with my brother, so I wasn't there with him at the time. Uh, I just know when he came back, he, he really, really enjoyed it. He, again, it wasn't he wasn't in the best of health. I forget exactly what year it was. I think it was like 2012 or 11. It wasn't much uh, too much earlier before uh, the Hall of Fame deal, so he wasn't walking around or speaking as well as he'd had in the past, but it was a great experience for him. Um, and I know I, he, he absolutely revered one person in life, and that's his mother. Right, and you you talk about his mother. What what was that like? Your grandmother, of course. Uh, did did you? What kind of stories were passed down to you? Oh, uh, just again, my dad just revered her. Loves her. Loved. She sacrificed everything for him, and uh, she couldn't talk about it without crying. And do you talk about with Rebel with the cause? I know. Um, with with Jerry's family history and such, do you talk about that entire migration process and how the family history uh, moved over during that period? I know Jerry was born in 1930. Do you talk about the what what happened before that? Oh yeah, we we, we there's a the beginning chapters all talk about the Armenian genocide, the, the, his mother, um, you know, which her her mother sewed coins in her dress and put on a horse and got out of the village before the Turkish uh, army came in and wiped out the entire village and uh, how a nice Turkish family hit her in the basement when the Ottoman soldiers were searching for her. Yeah, we went through the whole thing in there. It's very 
hard to talk about because it was so painful to our family. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know as, as Armenians, um, and every, if you ask every Armenian, they can trace back their story all the way up to the genocide. And for for families who are fortunate enough to overcome that, it's everyone's life kind of went into different directions. People fled to different countries. Obviously, there were programs that led people to the to the United States, which of um, coincidentally, from a sports standpoint, was Steve Kerr's grandparents um, with um, what all the work they did from the from a relief effort. And you know, you've carried on the family legacy. You carry the last name now very proudly. And you yourself now uh, have a lot of touch points with the Armenian community, specifically in Las Vegas, where you've um, participated in political endeavors and obviously your life after basketball. Uh, what is that like, J- uh, Danny? Well, you know, I've always been interested in politics. And when I got done coaching my father, I decided to run. And, you know, my father, people look at him and think of him and his perception is, oh, he always knows his basketball. But my dad was like Columbo in a lot of ways. He'd act like he didn't know anything about outside of basketball, but he was just pulling the wool over your eyes. So when I told him I was going to run for politics, he said, why would you want to do that? The people that are the most successful are the ones that lie the best and have the most money to lie the most often. I laughed at him. And then I, you go through the experience. I've had about $31 million spent against me in um, my four federal races that I ran in. Um, just lying and making up the worst stories and, um, and and people buy into it. I feel so badly because I've taken so much money from so many prominent Armenians around the country, Most many of which are in Southern California, that I'll never be able to repay them. But, you know, I, I gave it the best effort I could. I, I didn't give up. I kept trying to persevere. Who knows what the future will hold. Uh, but I had no chance for, to run those races and be as competitive as I had if I didn't have the support of the Ar- Armenian community and um, I certainly feel a, a, a big hurt that I wasn't able to accomplish more in that area. Now, of course, um, you have the book now. Uh, March Madness is coming in the, around the corner, which is obviously a time where the Tarkanian last name will reverberate throughout every every particular TV broadcast. But uh, what's keeping you busy these days? Well, I, I moved up to northern Nevada to be in a smaller community, let my kids get a chance to... Uh, um, grow up and be influenced uh, during their formidable years with, with the, uh, uh, you know, just a smaller, more close-knit community. So I'm in northern Nevada. I spend a lot of times right now uh, with my kids doing different activities with them. I spent, I went on for about six or eight years or six out of the last eight years campaigning full-time and not spending as much time with the kids as I should. And three of my girls were in high school. My younger boy is still young. But I want to get some time with them before um, uh, they left the household, and I'm having that opportunity right now. Yeah, and that's very important. Again, it kind of goes back to the what Armenians are about from a cultural standpoint, very family-oriented and something that, you know, we take great pride in. And, you know, I, I have to ask you, Danny, do you take great pride— in the the proliferation of sports in Sin City right now, because I I think the heyday of UNLV and all everything that you guys had to go through um, from that perspective has really helped shape what sports could look like in the state right now. And of course now 
the unthinkable has happened. We have an NFL team in Las Vegas. We have other major sports coming through to the city. Do you think UNLV was a had a prominent role in the in these sports times right now in Las Vegas? Yeah, you know, I, I have great pride and, and satisfaction that my dad um, helped start the the um, sports craze that is here in Las Vegas. But even more so than that, and I, and I keep harping on it, my dad had great foresight and could understand things. When he left Long Beach State, uh, Long Beach was a top-five program in the country three years in a row, and, and UNLV was was virtually not. The, the community wasn't very big. The, the university was, was called Tumbleweed Tech, uh, uh, but and the first trip down uh, in Las Vegas, my mother was with them. They were driving down the strip, and my dad said, "This is a great college community. They love college basketball here." And my mom's looking at the strip and, and driving. She says, "God, I married a lunatic. He's crazy. There's no way." And uh, now you look at it. What is it? Uh, Sixty years later, it's going to be the entertainment. It's going to be the sports capital of the world. You have most of you mentioned UFC and uh, professional boxing events there. They got a pro football, pro hockey, and pretty soon there'll be a pro basketball team there. It's, and they're going to have all the major events here because they have the great hotel space, best food, best entertainment. My father saw this 60 years ago and was right again. And, you know, the Tarkanian last name will forever live in Las Vegas lore, uh, the, the legacy that has that, that was created and still stands today will, will forever remain. And... Uh, of course, Danny Tarkanian has put all of this together in um, an amazing book, Rebel with the Cause, uh, detailing all of the, the great doings of Jerry Tarkanian and Danny Tarkanian, of course, standing right there beside him to not only be a part of it, but document it as well, too. And it's it's really a must read for anyone who is not only interested in sports, but the family, loyalty, culture, and as well as um, the fighting spirit that uh, Jerry Tarkanian exemplified. And um, Danny, we I, I can't thank you enough for um, t- talking and really detailing uh, your father's life and uh, looking forward to seeing um, the book reach the acclaim that it should. Well, I really appreciate it. I hope the people who uh, read it enjoy it. It, it, it uh certainly meant a lot to me to write it and i know they'll get a better understanding and appreciation for my father uh once they read it and uh for for all of our listeners uh, how can they follow along uh, on the journey with you on social media uh my i gosh my twitter is at at danny tarkanian and um my facebook is danny tarkanian too uh so I'm I'm pretty simple. I'm creative. Tough ones to remember. I'm pretty simple myself. I'm at Manuka Kopian. And uh, thank you, everyone, for uh, listening along and uh, looking forward to following up again in the near future, Danny. All right. Thank you very much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Likewise. Bye.